passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, as we approach God's word this morning, I do have a question for us, and that is this. What is your weakness? What is your weakness? What is the one thing about yourself that you would change if you could? For some of us, it might be a chronic health condition, something that crops up every now and then and brings your life to a screeching halt. For others of us, it might be something that happened to us in our past, something that we can still feel the, the waves and the ripples to this day. And still for others, it might be some sort of addiction that we may or may not recognize. What is your weakness? As we approach God's word, we're going to see Genesis 32 as a a chapter all about weakness. As we continue working our way through Genesis for the last several weeks, we've been looking at Jacob. And as we look at Genesis 32, we actually see that this is the lowest point in Jacob's life. And in in fact, it, it couldn't have come at a worse time because for the first time in Jacob's life, he's actually actively trying to follow God. For the first time in his life, he's actually trying to obey God, to be faithful to what God has called him to do. And in the midst of this attempt at faithfulness, things don't get better. Things actually get much, much worse. Maybe you've experienced something along those same lines. You've tried your hardest to be faithful to God, and in those moments you are faced with some of the most difficult situations in your life. You are trying hard to obey Him, to serve Him faithfully, and out of nowhere the cancer returns and knocks you flat, knocks you flat on your back. Out of nowhere the past comes back and leaves you wondering what on earth is coming next. Oftentimes, this is the way things work when we seek to be faithful, when we seek to follow God. In those moments, oftentimes, life hits hardest. And that's what Genesis 32 is all about. Genesis 32 is about encountering God in those moments, encountering God in the weakness, at the end of your rope. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 32. If you don't have a Bible, the the passage is actually printed in your sermon notes this morning. And as we look at Jacob's life, we're going to see this very thing, that God meets Jacob in his weakness. And the same thing is true for us this morning, that God meets us in our weakness as well. Just a little bit of backstory for those of us who weren't here last week. Last week, Jacob finally decides to return to the promised land. He's been living for 20 years with his uncle, hundreds of miles away from the land that God has promised to him. And after years of of serving his uncle faithfully, he has become wealthy and it's time to head back home. And so he sets off on this journey back to the promised land and his uncle confronts him. And there's this big confrontation and his uncle and he eventually decide to let bygones be bygones. And they set up a pile of rocks as a monument, as a boundary between the two of them, saying that they won't cross this boundary line. 
And as we open up Genesis chapter 32, we see that this is immediately following those moments. In fact, this takes place just 16 miles further south from his encounter with Laban. So very, very soon after he has left Laban, Jacob continues on his journey and he encounters a camp of angels. Just imagine what that would have been like for Jacob. Just imagine the encouragement this man must have felt. That God, who in Genesis chapter 28 had promised Jacob, I will be with you. I will walk with you. I will bring you back to this promised land. And then Jacob, on his way back to the promised land, encounters a camp of angels. And he names this camp the camp of God. See, this is significant that this isn't just the house of God like Bethel in Genesis 28, but this is a camp. It is a transient location. It's a symbol saying that God has been traveling with Jacob. God has been walking with Jacob this entire time. Even when Jacob couldn't see God, God has been with him. And friends, the same is true in our lives as well. Even when we don't see the camp, God is with us. God is walking with us in the good times and in the bad. Imagine the encouragement that Jacob must have felt in this moment. And I think it's this reminder that God is with him that gives him the strength and the encouragement to do what comes next. You see, when Jacob left the promised land 20 years earlier, he had left on less than good terms with his twin brother Esau. He had cheated his brother Esau. He had stolen from his brother Esau. He had deceived in order to acquire the things that were promised to Esau, at least from his father. And as he left the promised land, Esau said unashamedly that he was going to kill Jacob the moment that his father had passed away. And so Jacob, on his way into the promised land, decides to send messengers to Esau. Messengers to this man who had declared his intentions to murder him. And what Jacob is doing is very important here. You see, Jacob did not have to approach Esau in order to enter the promised land. There's a graphic, if we have that map, if you want to throw it up here, uh, just a little bit of geography lesson for us. Uh, Jacob is in the, uh, the top right circle up here. This is where all of this is taking place. And God had told him to return to Bethel, which is this circle right here in the middle of the screen. And if you notice, Edom is much further south. And Edom is where Uh, where Esau had actually relocated. And so geographically, for him to to follow God's plan, follow God's purpose, for him to return to Bethel, he really didn't have to go to Edom. In fact, it's completely out of his way to go to Edom. He could have gone to the promised land without first approaching Esau. But spiritually, he had to go through Esau. Spiritually, he had to make things right with Esau. He had to repent to the man that he had stolen from, that he had deceived, that he had helped split apart their family with. He had to repent. And this repentance was imperative for him to enter the land that God had given to him on God's terms. And so Jacob swallows his pride. 
He rejects the easy way into the promised land and he decides to face his fear and he sends these messengers to Esau. And we're not going to read it, but I just want you to later on this week take a look at the, the beginning of this passage and notice the message that is on the lips of these messengers. First, Jacob tells them to call Esau Lord. He says, call my brother Lord, Lord Esau. If you look at Genesis 27, if you remember back to that passage, we see that in this stolen blessing, this blessing that was promised to Esau from his father Isaac, that Jacob took from him, Esau, and actually Jacob, is called Lord over his brothers. This stolen blessing that he has received includes this stolen title of Lord. So that's the first thing to notice. The second thing to notice is that he tells the messengers to to share with Esau of his great wealth. He says, tell Esau about how wealthy I am. And it's almost like he's saying, you know what? Make sure that Esau knows that I have enough. Make sure that Esau knows that I'm not coming back to the promised land to take what I've stolen from him in word. Make sure that he knows that I am content with what I have. What Jacob is doing is he's relinquishing what he's stolen. He's returning what he has stolen back to Esau. He's giving back the stolen blessing by telling Esau of how much wealth that he has. And he's returning, excuse me, by telling Esau uh, that you are Lord. And, and he, uh, he returns the stolen birthright by saying how much wealth that he has in this moment. And Jacob shows us what it means for us to repent as well. First, Jacob shows us that it's never too late to repent. Jacob should have repented years ago. Jacob should have repented the moment after he was convicted by God for what he had done to his brother. And yet he decided to let it simmer for 20 long years. And now as he's entering into the promised land, he repents. It's never too late for you to repent. It's never too late for any of us to repent. But even more than that, notice what this story, these words tell us. As Jacob sends these envoys to his brother Esau, it reminds us that repentance is never just between us and God. Repentance is never just between us and God. Jacob goes out of his way to make sure that he fixes things with his brother. Over 20 long years, at some point, Jacob probably found out or or was convicted that he was in the wrong, that he had stolen, that he had cheated, that he had deceived. He had probably even admitted these things to God. But in order to enter the promised land, that wasn't good enough. He couldn't just repent before God. When it was possible, he had to also repent before Esau. Many of us are familiar with the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a a man who extorted his fellow citizens, who took advantage of them for his own personal gain. And the moment that he encounters Jesus, the moment that he uh, is brought into salvation, the first things on his lips are saying that he will return to anyone that he has stolen from 400% what he has stolen The repentance here is not just between Zacchaeus and God, but it's between Zacchaeus and those he has wronged. 
Repentance is never just between us and God. For Jacob, that meant that he had to face Esau. For Zacchaeus, that meant he had to face those that he had wronged. And for us, we also must face those that we have wronged. If it is possible for us to repent face-to-face with those that we have wronged, we must do so in order to enter the promised land. Repentance is never just between us and God. And so Jacob sets out on this path of repentance, but unfortunately his attempt at repentance and his attempt at restitution seems to fall on deaf ears. And Esau comes after Jacob with 400 men, which is the size of a small army. This is a militia setting off to encounter Jacob. And it's in this moment that Jacob is in his darkest moment. It's in this time where he realizes he can't return to Mesopotamia because of his agreement with Laban. He's now tried to do the right thing, fixing things with his brother Esau, but those have been misinterpreted. He has no idea what to do. And he has no idea what to do, and so he does something he has never done before. He gets on his knees and he prays. If you have a Bible, pick up in verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. We could spend a great amount of time looking at this very, very powerful prayer, but just briefly notice the highlights. Notice first at the beginning of this prayer, the name that he uses to refer to God. He doesn't just call God, God. He says, O Lord, who is said to me. He uses this name, Lord. If you look in your Bible, a lot of times you'll see that that some of the, the times when the word Lord is used, it's actually capitalized. And this is a special word, you probably have heard it before, Yahweh, which refers to God's special covenant name. It's a special name that he uses in reference to his relationship with Israel and later on with the church. It is this covenant name that is first given to Abraham and then later to Isaac. And now Jacob is using it for the first time. Jacob is significantly is referring back to the relationship, the covenant that has been made between him and God. He is focusing on this God, not just being a God, but his God, the one that he relies on. Notice also how he starts his prayer. He starts his prayer by referring back to the word of God. He looks at what God has said to him, what God has promised to him, and he uses that as the foundation for what he prays. He looks at what God has said. He looks at God and says, this is where my hope lies. This is where my trust lies. 
Next, notice that he refers to his unworthiness. He says that he's not worthy of the grace and the mercy that God has lavished upon him. And then he, he begins to plea with, plead with God. He says, God, I am afraid. I need your help. I can't do this on my own. I look to your promises that you have made to me, and I need you to follow through because I can't do this alone. And then finally, he ends with trust in what God has said. He refers back to the word of God, and he says, you know what, God, what you have promised me, it doesn't look anything like what my life is like right now. You have promised me this land. You have promised me prosperity and wealth. And when I look at what is facing me, when I look at my brother possibly coming to kill me, things don't line up. But I trust in you. Rather than doubting in God and in God's promises, he looks at this as an opportunity to press further in to encounter God, to trust in God more. And just take a moment and ask yourself, are your prayers similar? Maybe not in structure, but in content, are your prayers similar? Do you run to the covenant that has been made in Jesus' blood for you, the special relationship with God that you now have confidence to approach his throne? Not only that, but do you have your prayers shaped and guided by the word of God, specifically by the promises that are in God's word? Do you confess your unworthiness? Do you recognize God for his grace and his faithfulness? And do you worship him for that grace? Do you approach God humbly? Do you plead with him, recognizing your inability to accomplish things on your own, to receive what you desperately need without his help? And when things don't make sense, when your life doesn't line up with what God has promised, do you ultimately trust in him? Do you ultimately place your confidence in his word, no matter what things look like today? Friends, I think that's one of the reasons why God allows us to experience weakness in this life. It's to rid us of our self-sufficiency. For Jacob's entire life up to this moment, he has spent time and time again trying to take care of himself, only relying on himself. This is a smart, athletic, shrewd man. He knew the weaknesses of those that he dealt with. He was a hard worker. This is the epitome of a self-made man. He looks at his massive flocks and he could say, I accomplished this on my own. But in the face of his brother, his fearsome brother, in the face of this band of 400 men, Jacob could do nothing. He could do nothing to save himself. And that's why he prayed. In fact, that's probably why he had never prayed before, because he didn't think that he actually needed to pray, because he could take care of things on his own. Have you ever considered that every single day that you go without praying to God is a day that you are saying to God, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. That's what Jacob said for day after day, year after year, decade after decade. I can do this on my own. And then God brought him to this moment where he realized that he couldn't do it on his own. 
Friends, that's why God allows us to experience weakness. To realize that we can't do life on our own. And that's what we see in these next few verses. We're going to read the the end of this uh, passage together. The end of this chapter. Very familiar passage of scripture when Jacob wrestles with God. Picking up in verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children. And crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall be no longer Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me what your name is. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed them. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I've seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The night before Jacob encounters Esau, he takes more time to pray. This is the first time, again, in Jacob's life that he is actively trying to truly be obedient. And how does God respond to him? God responds by pummeling him to the ground. God responds by leaving him bruised, bloodied, sweaty, and dirty. God wrestles with Jacob for hours. And you might say, why? Why is it that God does not just reward Jacob for his newfound obedience? In our lives, when we are trying to follow God, why doesn't God always just reward us for our obedience? To make everything right just right away. The answer is far deeper than that. God wanted Jacob, and God wants us in our weakness as well, to encounter him, to meet God, and not just seek what God can give us. God wants Jacob to realize that he is not just a giant slot machine in the sky, that he is not just a magic genie. He wants Jacob to know that he is dangerous, that he is a holy God, that his primary concern is not Jacob's comfort, but it is something far more important than that. For the first half of Jacob's life, he is stolen, he is cheated, he is deceived, he's been seeking after the wrong things. And as God wrestles with Jacob here, he wants Jacob to realize that only he can fill the void in his life. Only he can satisfy his longings, his cravings, his searchings. And friends, God allows us to go through pain, to go through weakness, to experience the exact same thing. So we can know who God is. 
Yes, God does indeed care when we turn our back on him. God does indeed care when we walk away from him. God is a lamb, yes, but he is also a fierce lion. God's number one priority each and every day is not your comfort, but it is something far greater, far more important for you. He wants us to know him. He wants us to be satisfied in him. He wants us to trust him and him alone. And at some point during this wrestling, Jacob realizes this. Take a look at verse 25 again. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. I want you to imagine that you were Jacob. You are praying outside in the middle of the night, in the middle of the wilderness. You're expecting to face death the very next day. You're all alone in an unfamiliar land. And then suddenly out of nowhere, a hand grabs you from behind and throws you on the ground. What is your response? What are you going to try to do in that moment? You're going to try to escape. You're in the struggle for your life. And so you're going to try everything you can do to get out of the grasp of this one who has attacked you. And for hours, that's exactly what Jacob does. He wrestles for hour after hour after hour to escape. But he is unable to do so. And then this man, if you will, merely touches his hip. And shooting pain goes straight up his side and Jacob is left incapacitated for the rest of his life. With a simple touch. And then notice the change that happens in verse 26. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. In the midst of the blinding pain of his dislocated hip, Jacob finally gets it. Jacob finally realizes what exactly is happening, and he stops trying to escape the grasp of this man, but instead he tries to hold on. This is not an exaggeration. For Jacob's entire life, up until verse 25, he has spent wrestling with God in order to get away from God. Every single thing Jacob has done has been trying to get away from God, trying to fill his life with other things. And then verse 25 comes. And he encounters God, and he realizes that the only thing that can fill his void in his life is God himself. What about you? What about you? Are you wrestling to get away from God? Or are you wrestling to hold on to God? To refuse to let him go? See, here's the thing. God allows hardship. God knocks us down. God wrestles with us when we try to escape him because he wants us to get to a place where we don't want to escape, where we hold on to him, where we won't let him go. And Jacob learned that the hard way. With death before him from his brother Esau and death behind him from his uncle Laban, he learned to trust God. 
He learned from all of his wrestlings to hold on to God, to cling tightly to God. And this encounter with God left him with a limp. It left him with a limp. And friends, oftentimes encountering God will leave us with a limp as well. What's your limp? What is your limp? For some of us, it is a broken marriage, whether it's yours or a family member's, and you feel the shrapnel affecting your entire life. For others, it may be the sting of singleness, something that Paul promises and, and declares in the New Testament as a gift. But in the reality of your day-to-day life, it sure doesn't feel like a gift. For others, still, it might be the giant hole in your heart left by the lost loved one who left too soon. What is your limp? Because it is in the limp that we encounter God. It is in our weakness that we encounter God. Because it is in our weakness that he teaches us to stop trying to escape him. Stop trying to run away. And to hold on. And cling to him. But here's the thing. It's not just in our weakness that we meet God. It's also in his weakness. It's also in God's weakness that we meet him. That's what this passage is telling us, that we encounter God when our weakness meets his. We encounter God when our weakness meets his. Here's what we mean by that. How is it in Genesis chapter 32 that the creator of all the universe... The one who created everything out of nothing without breaking a sweat in Genesis chapter 1. How is it that this God is unable to best Jacob in a wrestling match? Simply put, it's because God made himself weak. God made himself like Jacob so that Jacob could know him. And Jacob could encounter him. Friends, God does the exact same thing with us as well. Philippians chapter 2 declares this about Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Paradoxically, it is in Jesus's weakness on the cross that Jesus is found to be most powerful. It is on the cross when Jesus takes the full weight of God's wrath in a way that you could not, in the way that I could not, in the way that Jacob could not. It is in that moment that the greatest display of strength has ever been seen. It is in God's weakness, when our weakness meets his, that we are able to encounter God. If you are limping today, Whatever your limp may be, you are not alone. If you are limping today, I urge you, I plead with you to hold on 
to the God who loves you. Friends, if you are limping today, don't run from God, but run to the God who voluntarily made himself weak that we could be strong. It is in our weakness, it is in God's weakness that we encounter him. Let's pray. Father, we are so very, very thankful for the message of Genesis chapter 32. We are left in awe of what you have done for us, the great lengths that you went to meet us, the great lengths that you went so that we could know you, that we could encounter you, and we could be found in you. God, help us to hold on to you and not to wrestle to let go. Let us cling to you, the God who loves us, the God who saves us, and the God who died in our place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.